it is the spirit of uniqueness, I think, in a lot of ways that characterizes so much of what comes from up here. And, uh, you know, that that goes for for all of the Grammy winners who have come from here, who have all done so by not necessarily conforming to what was popular during their respective times. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week I'm speaking with Dowdy Abe. Dowdy is a professor of humanities at Seattle Central College and a historian whose work has appeared in Crosscut, among many other publications. He's also an author, most recently of Emerald Street, a history of hip hop in Seattle. It's in this book that Dowdy provides a complete and dizzying history of 40 years of hip hop in Seattle, from dance parties at the Boys and Girls Club in the Central District to big wins on the Grammy stage and a lot of places in between. This is a story about civil rights, integration, gentrification, gangs, and mass incarceration. And it's a story about art, in particular the four elements of hip-hop, graffiti, breakdancing, DJing, and rapping, or emceeing. In Dowdy's telling, these are two sides of a story that cannot be separated from one another. Hip-hop is connected to the times. But it's not always a reflection of the times. Sometimes, as was the case with Seattle hip-hop, and still is the case, it provides a vision for the future. In the conclusion of his book, Dowdy writes, For all of the achievements produced over the decades, the nature of the culture is less about looking back and more about forward movement. Awards, championships, and incorporated entities can inform local legacy but with its focus on youth, creativity, experimentation, and new forms of expression, hip-hop remains oriented toward the future. The future only takes shape as fresh generations of DJs, graffiti writers, artists, B-girls and B-boys, MCs, beatboxers, teachers, journalists, fashion designers, researchers, promoters, broadcasters, filmmakers, activists, and others interpret what hip-hop means to them in the context of their own lives and experiences. Dowdy, welcome to Crosscut Talks. Thank you, thank you. It's my absolute pleasure to be here. So, Dowdy, I want to start off with you, actually. I'm, I'm wondering what your story is here. Where does hip-hop begin for you? Uh, Hip-hop begins in the fall of 1979 uh, with my father taking me to a store called Dirt Cheap Records that used to be on the corner of 22nd and Union Street, right up here, just up the street from where I am here in the Central District of Seattle. And he told me to go ahead and pick a record, my own record for the very first time. Uh, again, I'm, I'm born in 1970, so I'm nine years old in the fall of 79. And my mother is a white woman from Wisconsin, and she grew up, you know, loving John Denver. And my father is an immigrant from Uganda, and he, he loved an African artist named Franco. And so I had a, a kind of an eclectic listening uh, uh, selection growing up. And so he turns me loose, and I'm wandering around the store, and I literally stumble upon a, uh, a 12-inch vinyl uh, record that has this very kind of swirling multicolored logo on it. And I'm immediately attracted because my little sweet tooth nine-year-old self begins thinking of candy. So I pick up <laughs> this record and take it to the, uh, to the, to the stand, to the, you know, checkout counter. And, uh, the, uh, guy, uh, at the, you know, the register says, well, this is a real hot record out of New York. And I'm like, hmm, 
I don't, you know, I don't know anything about that. I just want it. But I, but I get home and I start playing it and, uh, and I'm somewhat familiar with the baseline because obviously that, uh, Sylvia Robinson, the woman, uh, the executive at Sugar Hill Records who, who put this project together, just displayed some visionary thought, forethought by really, uh, sampling a, a, a baseline that was already known and very kind of accessible to, to a lot of people. Um, but then the vocals came on and I was thoroughly confused because up to that point in my life, all I had heard on music vocal wise was singing. Hmm. Um, and so they're talking as the vocals come on. And, and, right. and, and then, then I start listening to what they're talking about. And, and, uh, you know, one of the lines is, uh, you know, uh, I got a color TV so I can see the Knicks play basketball. And I remember at that time we had a black and white TV. Um, but I like basketball and I remember thinking, well, I would like to watch basketball on a color TV. That would be really nice. And so, you know, a lot of the things that they were saying really just spoke to a young person, you know, like me, who was just uh, eager to kind of soak up all of this creativity that was, that was seeping off of this record. And so on the A side of that, there was the, uh, like the four or five minute radio edit version of the song. But on the B side, there is a 15 minute uh, extended version of that song. And in that song, there is no there's no bridge. There's no chorus. There's no hook or anything like that. It is just like 15 minutes of straight rap. Uh, And so, you know, the storytelling, you know, the story, there's a story in the extended version about going over to a friend's house where the food is nasty. And, you know, there's just there's there's there. There are uh, many kind of uh, catchy and relatable elements uh, to that to that record. And it and it literally changed my life as it did for for so many people, not only in this town, but but this entire generation across the world. Right. And this was, of course, Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang. Right. Yes. Um, And as you write in the book, you know, and I love this is why I love about stories like this is that moment of contact. Right. When something new comes into the frame and um, that happens in Seattle when uh, KYAC, which is an AM rhythm and blues station, uh, gets its hands on this record. And I was curious, you know, if you, you write about this a lot in the book, but could you explain for the listeners what was the Seattle that Rapper's Delight sort of was introduced to? In this book, there is a kind of a brief survey of local black history. And I don't I think that, you know, even though the book goes out of its way to say that hip hop has always been, you know, very multicultural and, and, and very diverse, especially here. Uh, there's no question that hip hop is is of and comes from the African-American experience. And so. Right. Thinking about it in those terms, the the black community that are that was present and active at the time was still heavily loaded in the central district. But with the uh, open housing legislation that uh, that was passed uh, in 1968 here in Seattle, a couple of weeks after the assassination of Martin Luther King, that started to give license to black people to move out of the central district and begin to move to other areas. So you had some local black people that would move the places further in the South end and then uh, other black people that were moving to the area that had no necessarily connection to the historic black community were, were free to move wherever they wanted around the city. And that certainly had not been the case before that. 
the kind of community-based organizations and activities that came out of, you know, especially the Boys and Girls Club, because, you know, hip hop has always been and kind of continues, really continues to be a, a youth-driven culture. Uh, and so the spaces that were open and available, like in a lot of cities, like community centers that really played uh, pivotal roles for all of these young people to kind of come together and experience hip hop in a variety of different ways. And, you know, uh, the, the most obvious example there would be the parties that Sir Mix-a-Lot was throwing in the first half of the 1980s at places like right. the Boys and Girls Club in the Central District, where, you know, Mix-a-Lot would be, you know, DJing and rapping and doing all the cutting and everything kind of at the same time. This is the self-contained, you know, one man show in a lot of ways. And the, the, the spots around town, particularly south of Madison, were really the lifeblood what was happening here just in terms of the early scene. And then, like I said, going back to, to the kind of the original basis of your question, the story of a city's black community is to an extent also kind of in, uh, informs the flavor of its local hip hop. And Seattle has this uh, reputation as this very kind of forward, kind of progressive type of very self-congratulatory, pat yourself on the back because we're not Alabama type of attitude, you know what I'm saying, down here when it comes to race. But so let me just let me just read this paragraph, and I think it helps give a, a, a sense of of what I'm talking about with regard to the experiences of people of color and specifically black people uh, and what that looks and sounds like in the context of when we think of this place as such a progressive and forward looking looking area. So this is from the conclusion. On January 20, 1966, Reverend John H. Adams of First AME Church told the advisory committee to the U.S. Civil Rights Commission hearing, quote, Seattle is one of the few cities left in America which can solve its racial problem before it becomes unsolvable, end quote. In this statement, Adams spoke for numerous black, Latino, Native, Asian and white residents who, quote, still summon the courage to believe in a peaceful racial future for the city and the nation, end quote, wrote Dr. Quintard Taylor in The Forging of a Black Community. But that optimism has yet to be fully justified. Over ensuing decades, racial tensions have been further inflamed by such issues as police misconduct, racial inequities, and increasing gentrification. Taylor concluded, quote, indeed, Seattle's apparent success and its underlying failure in its race relations paradigm has been its meticulously crafted image, which promoted the illusion of inclusion, end quote. Hmm. The illusion of inclusion is such a brilliant way to put that because, yes, there were kind of specific uh, examples that you can point to, such as black men voting in the 1880s here, black women even voting for a time in the 1880s. And I mean, if we're talking about comparatively speaking with other parts of the country, that is way ahead of the racial curve. I mean, I'm not even going to talk about, you know, access to black people voting in 2020. You know what I'm right. saying? We're talking about in the 1880s. So in that sense, yes, it is. It is. It was uh, ahead of the racial curve. But also you have to kind of counter that, uh, you know, and while we didn't have necessarily have the, the, the dogs in the streets and the water hoses and the, and the lynchings, per se, like there were in other parts of the country. That's not to say that, you know, racism, prejudice, discrimination is a is a is a non-issue here because it certainly is. And one need only go look at, you know, two of the most uh, predominant institutions in this city, just like any city, 
the Seattle Public Schools and the Seattle Police Department, both of which have been under federal investigation within the last 10 years for their conduct toward African-Americans and other people. And so there's a there's a kind of complex sociopolitical history that helps underline what the atmosphere of Seattle was when hip hop arrived in the fall of 79. It's interesting how you talk about, you know, that passage from from the conclusion, which I just I, I found quite surprising. I mean, I I guess I had figured that the illusion of inclusiveness in our community was something that was uh, perpetuated in more recent years and and that it to me it, it just it felt surprising to see the roots of it that it goes back so so deeply but also in this history that you tell in this book and like i said you know you you really do a a, a really excellent job of weaving in the sort of cultural context that is unfolding as these, you know, as these groups are taking form and this art is being made and, um, and uh, these creations are being recognized. You know, you talk about the teen dance ordinance, which is something that came down in the mid 80s um, in response to a club uh, in Seattle called the Monastery that a lot of people um, were trying to shut down because there was a lot of uh, reports of crime around there, things like that. But so the teen dance ordinance comes into place and it makes it pretty much impossible for anyone to host all ages concerts. Can you talk to me about the relationship between um, the city putting the clamps down on all ages shows? And I, I thought that you were connecting some dots in this book that I thought were really interesting around that. So as I was saying earlier, you know, youth is the lifeblood of hip hop. It always has been and, and really it continues to be. And so that really went about trying to kind of almost strangling the life out of the local youth scene because it was so it put so many restrictions, not only in terms of, you know, the, the million dollar insurance policy that you had to have in order to have an event or getting it vetted through the Seattle Police Officers Guild who would have to supply uh, off-duty officers for security. And so, you know, giving essentially giving them veto power, you know, over which shows would be, you know, or which events would be okay or not. And so, you know, you have people really trying to figure out ways around it. And I think one excellent example would be Jonathan Wordsayer Moore. He, you know, he, he's an artist. He, he's not only an artist, you know, I mean, he, he was also a label head. He founded Jasiri Media Group. Um, he was a manager uh, for other artists. He was really kind of local hip hop renaissance man. And he's somebody who, in the midst of the teen dance ordinance, started up Short Shot Sundays. And Short Shot Sundays was a, a, an afternoon, <laughs> you know, based event that would happen uh, at the sit and spin, which was a laundromat downtown, which, you know, doubled as a performance space. You know what I'm saying? If you could imagine that, that was just, you know, one of a number of kind of events around town that, that people were putting on to try to combat the teen dance ordinance. But it was at Short Shot Sundays uh, in 99, I want to say, that a young Macklemore made his debut. So around the same time that, that comes in, the whole uh, and the interconnectedness of, of gangs and crack uh, cannot be necessarily discounted since in, in the 80s, we're talking about Reaganomics, we're talking about recessions, we're talking about in a lot of ways, um, services being cut 
and uh, uh, economic opportunity being taken away from so many uh, inner city and urban communities. Uh, so in, in the in the midst of that, in the absence of legitimate ways to make money, you have you know you have the underground economy, and then you eventually have the crack economy. And crack was turning over so much money that gangs kind of became a natural kind of distribution network uh, as they made their way, their way around the country. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and argue that you wouldn't really have bloods and crips as spread out around the country as you do were it not for crack. You know, I mean, I know they certainly came up here around that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seattle Times running an article about them in the uh, 85 or 86, uh, something along those lines. And so, um, and so, you know, it's it's also the ways in which local hip hop kind of reflects, you know, what is happening with crack and what is happening with gangs. And probably, you know, the most famous, the most famous examples came from, from Los Angeles and groups like NWA uh, uh, and Ice-T. But, you know, even, even people here, you know, in, in, the, uh, in the song Posse on Broadway, Mixed is making some commentary, you know, about, about the rock man and uh, the song Union Street Hustlers uh, by Ice Cold Mode is talking about, you know, that particular uh, gang set that was operating uh, uh, up around 23rd and Union during that time. I may not necessarily connect the dots directly that one causes the other, but there was certainly there was certainly some overlap in terms of the effects that all three of those uh, those instances had on what was happening with local hip hop at the time. Mm. So you mentioned that that some of the artists in Seattle were were you know writing songs about about the crack epidemic. I mean they they were not ignoring the reality. But you know one of the things that you note kind of throughout the the history is how Seattle artists always seem to go a little bit against the grain, and the way that some of these artists the um, uh, that that you were mentioning, the the way that they would approach it would be a, a much more, it felt like critical manner. I mean, they 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 were not celebrating drug use. They were they they were critiquing it. I wonder if you can just just talk about how did Seattle hip hop respond to these new kind of cultural pressures that were put in place in in the late '80s. And how is it different from how the rest of hip hop responded? I suppose I should say, as I talk about in the book, um, one, one thing that's, that's, that's mentioned kind of toward the beginning, it talks about uh, the geographic space of Seattle uh, and the fact that we are up here in this kind of corner of the country. People uh, predominantly kind of look to Seattle as kind of the capital of this section of the country. They identify with our sports teams and, and cultural points, you know, glass art, newspapers uh, and music. Um, and so I think that uh, if we're talking about what makes it different up here and what has kind of given license, it's, it's always been that that isolation, uh, at least creatively, has made people feel like they don't necessarily need to follow or, or try to look elsewhere, you know, what I'm saying to, to what's going on. And I think that that was certainly uh, the case with hip hop, because, you know, to go back to, to an example of someone like like Mixlot, like I was saying earlier, you know, the song Posse on Broadway is released in 1987. And so this is right around the time when gangster rap uh, from Los Angeles is really starting to assert itself, where Ice-T has already uh, has released the album Rhyme Pays. N.W.A. has released their first album, not straight out of Compton, but their first album was called N.W.A. and the Posse. And so they're starting to 
really, like I said, make a space within the culture for that kind of hardcore gangster rap. And so it would have been very easy for someone like Mixlot to kind of fall in with that trend. But if you but but if you look at the song Posse on Broadway, you know, the the uh, the crucial sequence of the song when when they're talking about uh, when he's talking about him and his crew up at Dick's and they get into a little uh, beef with another crew. There's a woman who wants to uh, who's with the other crew who likes Mixalot's crew better and she wants to go over to their side. And her boyfriend is getting upset. He is about to physically assault his girlfriend when Mixalot and his crew intervene to stop this from happening. And they stop it using some mace. You know what I'm saying? That's not exactly what gangster rappers were talking about at that time. Gangster rappers were not talking about, you know, sticking up for, for women who are about to be assaulted. In fact, they were talking about assaulting the women. They, were talk- they weren't talking about solving problems with mace. They were talking about solving problems with Uzis. And AK-47s and shotguns. Um, and so the fact that Mixlot kind of goes the other way on that and, and ends up, you know, really kind of being the first person from Seattle to gain kind of that, that, that level of notoriety. When his song, when that video Posse on Broadway sh- ends up playing on Yo! MTV Raps, I mean, it was like, it was like, you know, because Yo! MTV Raps was... It was a big time in hip hop. It was a big kind. Of, that was a big kind of moment and kind of a a, a piece of of hip hop in the in the late eighties. And so to have that song uh, and that video um, showcasing the city in that way, playing and and have Mixlot kind of doing his own thing and not feeling like he has to be riding around in sixty four Impalas and and drinking forties of of old English and that kind of thing certainly set apart. Uh, what would be the tone uh, for a lot of hip hop that comes from here. And then, and then, and so it's, it's, it is the spirit of uniqueness, I think in a lot of ways that, uh, that, that characterizes so much of what comes from up here. And, uh, you know, that, that, that goes for, for all of the Grammy winners who have, who have come from here that have, who have all done so by not necessarily conforming to what was popular during their, their, their respective times. Well, that that brings us to an emergence of, you know, consciousness in, in hip hop, in Seattle hip hop is, has always been there. But really, you know, it, it does come into bloom really in the late 90s and the, the aughts. Uh, what what happened that that brought that to the fore that really kind of um, changed the complexion of of hip hop in this area for that era? Um, well, I would actually argue that that there has been a a stream of consciousness that has existed the entire time. You know, mm. I think back into the to the eighties, and there was a group called the Dira Boys, and you know they had songs. You know, uh, they had a song called "Crack Get Back," where they're talking about, you know, obviously the crack epidemic, and they had a song. You know, they were talking. Uh, they had songs talking about, um, um, you know. Uh, nuclear arms and nuclear arm reductions and even artists or groups who weren't necessarily associated particularly with this area and i'm thinking of you know the group diggable planets and the leader of that group ishmael butler garfield high school class of 87 you know what i mean he leaves here and he goes to new york and he and he becomes a, a founding member of that group and the things that they were talking about you know they cast themselves as insects. You know, one was butterfly, and mm. one was ladybug, and one was doodlebug. And they talked about colony, and they talked about Marx, 
and they talked about socialism. Um, and, and there's even a song on, on their first album, uh, La Femme Fetal, which is a pro-choice <laughs> anthem, which name checks Roe v. Wade. You know what I mean? And, and there, not a lot of, not a lot of mainstream rap groups were really going that route. Hmm. And so you have this, you know, I think this, this hip hop being of, of two, of two sorts, right? Where I think that it's really a reflection of reality in a way that is, um, appealing because of its unvarnished reflection of reality. And then there is this aspirational aspect of it, right? And they always seem to be there. One seems to be the backlash against the other. It goes back and forth. Um, this kind of brings me to Macklemore, whatever you think of his, his work, he was a transformational artist. How did Macklemore change Seattle hip hop? He is simply an example of the continuation of people not feeling like they have to copy or be or sound like something else. So I was talking about mix a lot. And the example that I used was Posse on Broadway. Um, but the, but he didn't win the Grammy for Posse on Broadway. He won the right. Grammy for Baby Got Back. And even in that song was a pushback against kind of traditional, you know, what I mean, Eurocentric standards of beauty and body shape. Um, can't quite call it a feminist song because it, it still relies kind of on the male gaze. Um, and so if you bring it up to Macklemore, I mean, so two of the uh, two, two, the two songs, I, I, I would say that raise his profile uh, most significantly are, are two songs that, that go against kind of two of the most longly held norms uh, within mainstream hip hop. Uh, one of those would be Thrift Shop, um, which goes against the whole hip hop notion of bling, which is, you know, uh, name brand clothing and, and flashy jewelry, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and then Same Love, uh, which goes against homophobia. Now, in my mind, there is no question that the fact that he was from Seattle and the fact that he was white, there may be a bit of privilege that comes with a white artist addressing these these particular issues for sure. And, and the fact that he's from here. But I think that one thing that I would say is that from the beginning, he has struck me as someone who has really kind of tried to go out of his way to not behave in, in, in the fashion of an appropriator. Now I do have to say that, you know, Macklemore as a straight identifying artist, you know, having a song like same love, you know what I mean? That, that, even though same love kind of ends up being this this worldwide anthem that that, that LGBTQ people can take and kind of uh, you know it was the theme song for the for the initiative for the same sex marriage initiative here back in 2012. But I think that um, that those things aside, that those that ultimate success, it's like I said, it speaks a little bit. To, to his space that he's occupying as a white artist, but it also speaks even in, to me uh, even more loudly about the artistic freedom that people feel up here and, and are encouraged to take and the, the artistic risk that people are, are, are willing to try that, that come from up here. And that, that's really been just a, a hallmark of local hip hop the entire time from the very time, from the very beginning when I first picked out that rapper's delight. You know, I mean, people from around here have been thinking about not only how to do it, 
but how to do it differently in a way that is uniquely Seattle. All right. That's Dowdy Abe. His book is Emerald Street, A History of Hip-Hop in Seattle. Dowdy, thanks so much for coming on the show this week. It's my pleasure. Thank you. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to Dowdy for coming on the show this week. The episode was engineered by Resty Bacall and produced by Jake Newman. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more on the CrossCut Talks podcast, go to crosscut.com talks. And if you like the show, please review us. It really helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back next week with another episode. <laughs>